Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. The draft reading series celebrates the diverse and talented writing in Lighthouse's workshops. Each draft hovers around a given theme and happens once per eight-week session, every winter, spring, late summer, and fall. Writers in workshops are drafted by instructors and sent to the front lines to read their work. The theme of the Draft 20.0 was Time's Arrow and featured experimental hybrid writer Beth Nelson, screenwriter Greg Habeneth, essayist Alejandra Meyerston, and novelist Jan Thomas. Welcome. My name is Mike Henry. For those who, of you who don't know me, uh, yeah, Mike Henry. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> who am I? Uh, I'm the executive director here. Thanks for coming. Happy holidays. Um, I was going to buy a Santa suit. Um, I know. Next year. Next year. I will. I swear. I've been thinking about it every year. Yeah, but um, we were late. So um, we didn't make the stop at Priority City. So, But I did go to the basement. I dug something out. So I'm just going to... Are you all right? Yeah. So my one good Santa joke was, I just flew in from the North Pole, and boy, are my reindeer tired. <laughs> yeah, okay. I guess it's good I didn't rent the suit then. That's awesome. All right. Good to know. <clears throat> have I said who I was? Yeah. Oh, I did. Okay. All right. Thanks for coming. Thanks for being here. We have an awesome show for you tonight. We have the draft. Is it 20.0? 1920.0, which, mean which means we've actually, well, we've had 20 of these things, right? 20 full versions of the draft. Whatever. Um, yes, exactly. And as executive director, I'm responsible for creating the budget, so that's really good that I know that. Yeah, that's right. We only had 19. This is the 20th. Right. I, I was wondering about that because, anyways, okay, good. Welcome to the 20th draft. Okay, so Mike's going to get off stage. And I'm going to introduce Victoria Hanley, who I often think of the YA middle grade group as this kind of Freemason cloistered group of really talented, super productive people who work with Victoria. I mean, it's just, they're with Victoria. They are just with her because she takes them through their books. They sometimes are writing, I don't know, 60,000 words a second. I mean, they're just crazy productive. I don't compare myself to them because I would, I would suffer by comparison. But uh, Victoria is an amazing instructor and always has somebody she puts up for the draft, which I, I think is amazing. I said amazing already. I think it's awesome. And um, she herself is, an, is a writer and writes amazing books that my kids amazingly find amazing. And... And um, I just want to introduce her so she can introduce her first reader. So come on up, Victoria Hanley. It's nice getting up here after Andrea because the mic is in the right place. So um, I just want to say a couple words about the middle grade genre because I believe this is the first middle grade novel excerpt that we will have here at Lighthouse. So if you're unfamiliar with middle grade, what it is is it's targeted to ages 9 through 12. And that's a little misleading because precocious 6- and 7-year-olds may read these books. And then, of course, there are the adults who continue to find them very enjoyable. And the wonderful thing about middle grade is that it really is these books that tend to bring us in, capture us, and turn us into lifelong readers. 
Uh, so think of Harry Potter, think of um, Charlie and the Cho- Chocolate Factory. In my case, it was The Secret Garden. There's a book that, that does it for you, and then you have to read another book, and then another book, and then that sometimes leads to the disease of being a lifelong writer, but that's, a, that's another subject. It's not easy. It is, like every genre, it is deceptively difficult to write a good middle grade book because the pacing is very swift, the characters need to be established rapidly, and all of this needs to be done with an economy of words. And so it's a rare person who can write middle grade well. And Jan is one of those people, so I'll say a few words about her. She is a Denver native. She spent some time in Germany as a child because her father was in the Air Force. She went to Kent High School along with Catherine Hope. (laughs) And um, she went to DU. She has a master's degree in public communications. I I don't understand how that fits with being a writer. (laughs) And um, when I asked her if there was anything that people should really know about her, she started talking about how spoiled her dogs are. (laughs) She claimed that her dogs are more spoiled than any other dogs. (laughs) To which I said, I highly doubt that. (laughs) And then she said, well, I have been known to hold an umbrella over my dogs when they go out to pee. (laughs) So... um, I think that is actually salient to her personality because she really spoils her fellow workshoppers. She spoils other writers, not to the extent or in the same way that she spoils her dogs. But she's very, very encouraging to others and motivational. Plus, I think it helps people come back to class because they enjoy reading what she wrote. So I'm going to just say a couple words about the book so far because this is an excerpt and it takes place close to 25% in. We're, we're kind of guessing because the book isn't completely written. Um, and so just to give you a little bit of background, there are two worlds in her story world and one of them is known as Right Earth and Right Earthians learn how to time travel and they learn how to move energy around. And then there is, of course... Our Earth. And in Right Earth, there was a woman named Tia After who committed so many crimes that she became a legendary criminal. And her daughter was sent to Our Earth to be fostered when she was a baby. And the story picks up when she's 11. And certain weird things have been occurring with her. And she has caught the attention of the Right Earthians who have decided to scoop her up and send her to school. Okay. Dana was so shocked she couldn't move. In less than a minute, she'd been kidnapped by an orange-haired school bus driver, teleported onto a hard and disgustingly sticky leather seat, forced to sit by a smelly middle school lacrosse player, and jeered at by a pack of mean girls who reminded everyone that Dana's mother was the worst, most despicable criminal the world had ever seen must get away. Dana squeezed her eyes shut and tried to concentrate. But get away how? Her brain was stuck in super slow speed. If only she could... Ouch! Dana's eyes flew open and she rubbed her side where something sharp had jabbed her. She glared at the lacrosse player accusingly. What? He asked. He held up both hands, stubby fingers spread wide. The skin around his blue eyes crinkled. Your lacrosse stick poked me. You need to move it. Uh Uh-uh, the hockey player shook his head. It was here first. Oh, come on, Gage, Dana heard someone say from the seat behind them. She craned her neck to look at a chubby, brown-skinned boy with oversized glasses. He held a comic book, The Last Adventures of Nearly Dead Finn, Volume 12, against his nose. Just move it, the boy said. He wore a starched white shirt and brown corduroy pants. His wiry black hair was cut short. I'm Roderick, he said to Dana. 
Rotter ick, you mean, Gage said with a snort. He doubled over, clutching his belly. I am so funny. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh, Roderick muttered. He shrugged and disappeared behind his comic book. Boys. Dana sighed, turned her back to them, and stared miserably through the window. The school bus had obviously picked up speed since leaving her neighborhood. The blocks and blocks of ancient brick homes with neatly mowed lawns and curvy walkways were long gone. Now they were driving through an industrial part of town full of battered gray warehouses streaked with rust and huge discount stores with thick black bars on the windows. Bam! A lacrosse stick wrapped the window inches from Dana's nose. Gage leaned in. What you doing? he asked. Are you thinking? Ick's always thinking. I think about thinking, but thinking about thinking's too hard, so I do. He huffed out a long breath. Yep, I'm a doer. Doer Gage, that's me. He leapt up, peered in the overhead bin, then plopped down and used his foot to prod under Dana's seat. Quaz, where's your stuff anyway, he asked. You do know we're on our way to a boarding school, don't you? Where's your board? He kicked the patched and battered duffel bag under his side of the seat. That's mine. It was my dad's, too, and his dad's. When I graduate, the first thing I'm going to do is buy a new board. This one wrecks. Rex, Quaz, the words were just two more things Dana didn't understand. She didn't know where she was going. She didn't know what she was supposed to do when she got there. She didn't have any money, and she certainly didn't have any friends. She risked a glance around Gage at the other girls on the bus. They huddled together, murmuring and laughing. Dana caught bits of their conversation. Saw Cam at Anna Sophia's party last week. Her hair is so long, I don't like it. (laughs) ILM says Summer Squash is the best new nail color. My mother bought that cheap spray tan and my face turned orange. Seriously, I wanted to die. Gage made a loud gagging sound and rolled his eyes. If I could do magic, he made a zipping motion across his mouth. Presto, shut up, oh. (laughs) Dana managed a small smile, then turned back to the window. She hadn't even noticed when they turned onto the highway or left the city. Denver must be far behind them now because the road was wide and empty. Low brown rocky hills pressed in from both sides. Snow-capped mountain peaks were barely visible in the distance, and the air was a lot chillier than before. She shivered just as Gage leaned over the seat and snatched Roderick's comic book. Hey, Roderick yelled, give me that. He started to rise, but Gage pushed him back in the seat, flipped around, opened the comic book, and stuck it under Dana's nose. Not even a real comic book, see? It's just a comic book cover. It doesn't want people to know it's really one of those puzzle books. Cryptography came an irate hiss from the seat behind them. I break codes. Cryptography, Gage parroted. He's always reading them. One time this summer, it got on a tratty bus and started doing codes. He got off on the wrong stop. They didn't find him for two days. (laughs) That is not even close to being true, Roderick said. He reached over the seat and shoved Gage's back. It was three hours. What if? Almost there, the bus driver called out. Gage focused his attention on Dana. You have been on one of our buses before, right? No. Watch me, then. He settled back in the seat, arms relaxed at his sides, palms up. He closed his eyes, then cracked them open to peer at Dana. Do it, he ordered. Why? Because you're going to wish you did, and buckling in, the bus driver roared. There was a huge ripping sound. Dana and Gage's seat split apart at the seams. Thick leather straps snaked out, flicking in the air like flat, angry worms. Dana tried to jump to her feet, but one set of straps crisscrossed her chest and slammed her back into place. Another strap, this one tipped with a hard plastic latch, sidled across her lap, snapped into a buckle that shoved its nose through a hole in the seat on Dana's other side and cinched so hard she could barely breathe. What's happening, she wheezed. Buckling in, Gage hollered. Dana had a horrible feeling she would lose her breakfast if she could just catch enough breath to hurl. (laughs) 
The bus lurched off the paved road, skidded on the shoulder, went airborne, then crashed onto a gravelly path and sputtered down a long, windy hill. I'm going to be sick, Dana shouted. It got sick the first time, too, Gage said, all over his shoes. That is not even close to being true, Roderick snapped. (laughs) Dana, you won't get sick if you breathe in through your mouth and out through your nose. Dana tried, but she couldn't gather her breath. I can't. Don't be such a girl, Gage shouted. Breathe. I don't want you erping on my feet. Somehow, Dana managed to suck a breath through her chattering teeth. After a second, she exhaled through her nose. Hmm. The boys were right. She did feel better. Almost there, the bus driver sang out, just around this corner. The bus hurtled through the last group of trees and catapulted into the air. Dana screamed. She didn't have much air in her lungs, though, so what came out was only a quiet little mewling sound like a kitten makes when it's hungry. The bus seemed to hover in the air for the longest time, then it dropped like a stone. Dana shut her, shut her eyes as the ground rushed up to meet them. She grabbed Gage's hand and squeezed tight, not caring if he hated her for being a girl. It didn't matter. She was going to die. They were all going to die. They were. <laughs> the bus bounced. Dana eased one eyelid open. The bus was still in the air, but it was bouncing. Every time it bounced, it dropped a little closer to the ground. Each drop was a little slower, and each bounce a little lower. Good landing, huh, Gage said. The bus finally settled on the ground with a little sigh. The seatbelts magically unbuckled and zipped themselves back into the upholstery. Gather your things, students, the bus driver called out cheerfully. She flicked her wrist at the door. The large green stone on her ring glowed, and the door snapped open. I'll just go make sure everyone is ready for us. You wait here while I do, and be good. Oh, yeah, we will, absolutely, of course, a chorus of voices chirped in response. Roderick reached under his seat and tugged out a snazzy blue backpack with padded straps. Gage yanked hard on his duffel bag and the ratty zipper burst open. A wave of frayed sweaters, mismatched socks, wrinkled shirts, dingy pants, and underwear that had clearly seen better days exploded like a geyser. (laughs) Gage dove to the floor. He scuttled about like a gerbil, frantically scooping up armfuls of clothes and shoving them in the broken bag. His neck and ears blazed scarlet. Looking for this, Gagey? A girl with pale skin and thick red hair held up a limp blue sweater with holes in the elbows. Give that back, Gage hollered. What will you do if I don't? Hit me? Oh, right. Can't do that, can you? One more fight and guess who gets expelled? She laughed. Guess this stinky old sweater is mine. Maybe I'll give it to the maid. She can use it to wash the floor. Dana jumped to her feet and shoved Gage aside. Or maybe you'll give it back, she snapped. Now. The girl blinked. What? You heard me, Dana said, hoping the girl couldn't tell she was bluffing. She never fought anymore, not since that time in third grade when Dewan Henry smashed her cupcake on Halloween. She'd been so mad she'd pushed him, or rather put out her hands to push him. Then the air between them had grown thick and hot and musty smelling like a damp old basement. Then kapow! Dewan flew backward and crashed into the chalkboard so hard it cracked. And off Dana had gone to another foster home and another school. She never told anyone that she hadn't really touched Daewon. Who would have believed her? She wasn't even sure she believed her. But she didn't fight anymore. Besides, it wasn't like she had friends to defend. At least she hadn't, until maybe now. The red-haired girl looked Dana up and down and up again, lingering a little too long in the messy twists in Dana's hair and her faded last year's style jeans. And if I don't? Dana moved closer, willing her knees to stop shaking. When the girl took an unsteady step back, Dana snatched the sweater and tossed it over her shoulder to Gage. Okay, so you have the sweater, who cares? The girl girl flicked her hair and sniffed. They'll make him burn it when we get to school anyway. Nobody wants Gage mold. She turned to the other kids. What's the only thing worse than having Gage on our bus? It's having Gage and Tina After's daughter on our bus. P.U. Her friends giggled. Shut up, Dana yelled. And the air around her started to get warm, just like in third grade. Hey, the girl yelped. What are you doing? The bus went silent. Uh Uh-oh. Dana swallowed hard. Now what? 
It worked. I knew it, Roderick yelled. He leapt up, gave Dana a quick wink that only she and Gage could see, and hopped into the aisle. His voice was so loud, everyone turned from Dana to stare at him. I am amazing, Roderick said, puffing out his chest. I've been practicing that all summer long. He smiled at the red-haired girl. Sorry, Peony, didn't mean to scare you. You did that, the girl Peony demanded. Yep. Roderick said, I guess I'm just, you know, extraordinary. (laughs) He sighed and flopped into his seat. But I'm tired now. I have to rest. He flicked his finger at Dana and Gage. You two sit down. Dana nodded meekly. She lowered her head so no one would see her grin and took her seat by the window. Even Gage played along. He gave his bag a hard kick and settled into the seat besides Dana. I don't know about this, Peony began. Roderick held up a hand. Nope, no more words. I need quiet. But I can't control my powers yet, Roderick said. (laughs) It's best to let me sleep. Otherwise, who knows what could happen. Fine. Peony slumped in her seat, crossed her arms, and pouted. But the minute we get to school, I am so reporting this. Oh man, that was perfect, Jan. It's perfect. I'm so reporting this. Um Next up, one of our instructors who has probably had the most transformative changes lately. Um, I've heard recently that I'm a kind of unconventional interviewer, but I knew within probably (laughs) within a few minutes that, that this guy would be great on our faculty and I think he's proven that he that he is. His his writing also has the same kind of sly, almost feline wit. I don't know what that means, but it feels <laughs> it feels true. Um, and he's he's coming up here to interview or to introduce his um, not to interview. Thank God, his his drafty uh, Richard Froud. I wasn't sure if I was going second or third. So I didn't know when you were saying that stuff. Should I be laughing now? <laughs> Feline wit, eh? <laughs> I haven't been down here since this thing came. Laurie just told me there's a camel femur in there. There is a camel femur. I don't... This really is. <laughs> So there we go. <laughs> I, thank you. <laughs> right. Um, I wrote this whole thing for Beth Nelson, and I'll, I'll, I'll read it in a minute. But I realized that what's better than what I uh, wrote is that uh, one of the pieces Beth's going to read this evening might have broken the world record for speed from uh, writing the piece to getting it published. Uh, in the class that we were doing, we were responding to different things um, it, me, each week. And uh, I gave her the assignment and she brought in the piece the next week and, uh, that she had written that week. And she told the whole class that it had already been published. So, <laughs> so try, try and beat that. <laughs> so um, so I, I'll read this thing now. When last August we started the new experimental and hybrid forms class at Lighthouse, I knew that the subject matter would be demanding. It would require participants to step outside their immediate comfort zones as readers, to disrupt what they had learned and so often returned to in favor of moving into more improbable territory. Over the past two sessions, Beth Nelson has taken this on, not only in her reading and generous thinking, but most of all, and to striking effect in her writing. I nominated Beth for the draft reading because I want all of you to see and hear this in her work, how the prose line, unbroken to the eye, can take on the rhythm and music of verse. 
how the rifts between paragraph or stanza can be bridged by suggestion, by passages that cannot be held, only travelled. Beth's work is built of these filaments, lines without, without boisterous heft, yet a powerful collective function, like so many layers of paint. Please welcome our ambassador to these newest continents, <laughs> to the uncharted possibilities of language, and of course to forms and parts unknown, Beth Nelson. <laughs> I, I could say a thing or two about Richard as well. He brings us this amazing stuff to work, inspires us, and makes us all feel like a family. And every time I leave, I want to come back just to be in a new family with Richard. And now he's got one. <laughs> that was a transformation. I, yeah, he's got this, I got to meet the baby and the wife. <laughs> so thank you, Richard. That was so nice. And it was... It was about a month later that it actually published, but it got accepted quickly. <laughs> it's called The Man on the Bridge. I'm beginning the third layer of my watercolor painting. This is the aquamarine layer over a crimson-red spread across yellow. The order doesn't matter. This is just the way it goes today. The sun is hot, so between layers I lie back on a bed of ivy and ruminate. Obsessed, perhaps, or so says Wally. Wally likes to stand above me, watch my blonde hair spread out like a forest of kelp in the sea. When I obsess, he says my lenses move back and forth under my closed eyelids like the pendulums of twin grandfather clocks. I'm painting the floodwaters gushing below the Third Avenue Bridge. My morning has burned away like so much kindling, even in this saturated place. The bridge is not crossable. Pounding waves erode the abutment, the pier's no longer stable. I should have crossed much earlier, days before, but I lingered on this side too long. I can see now a man breaking through the barriers set to stop traffic. He's forced the yellow girder aside, climbed through. He hauls a parcel from the other side, something lopsided and bumpy wrapped in a golden tarp. He's walking backwards, pulling the bundle by the plated rope woven through grommets. I drizzle water over the lower third of my painting, more on the left than the right. I want to blend the colors. An orange haze creeps up the paper. Little veins emerge, moving against gravity. They intersect with the aquamarine and form brief horizontal lines, a coat of some sort. On my palette, I mix burnt sienna with copious amounts of water, then fill my size 8 blunt round brush. The paint has a will of its own. I roll the paint back and forth, tilting the paper from side to side, careful not to cross into the space I've left empty in the center. I consider filling the void with the absurd little man crossing the bridge. He sheared the rope on jagged rocks that had washed over the bridge when the creek crested. He struggles to hold his load together. Every knot he ties unravels. Wally must be wondering by now where I've gone off to. My cell phone has been dead two days, and my picnic, picnic basket contains only cellophane and onions. The floodwaters are dark with rage, cursing against the creek bank, too thick with sludge to drink. Yesterday, I saw a cow floating by with a red bandana tied around her neck. Her big round eyes pleaded with me to free her from the current. I have three sheets left on my watercolor block. This includes the painting in progress. My father tells me the best paper is cold-pressed. Each year he sends me nine 20-page blocks of 140-pound arches. I tell him every year I will not be painting 180 pieces. He says I sit limits before I begin, and that has always been my problem. <laughs> my father knows no limits. There's an incessant prickle crawling down the right side of my back, reaching past my hip and crossing over my belly. Wally has warned me about daydreaming on ivy. The poison kind may appear innocent at times. Perhaps Ruchiol has invaded. The oil pervades, attaches without warning. I pull a blade from my bamboo brush mat and scale the detritus of my contaminated flesh away. I notice the man on the bridge is losing his patience. 
He's begun tossing his belongings into the water. It's still raining up creek. Just eight miles away, a torrent of waterfalls. People continue to sump pump basements and drive through water too deep. Firefighters risk their lives to pull men, women, children, sometimes even dogs, from waters intentionally violated. The death count climbs. Houses wash away. Water rises at the dry cleaners, causing dirty laundry to fill the streets. I admire the effect of burnt sienna on the page. Cast, gray iron, cast iron gray clouds obscure the sun, making the drying process tedious. The distance across is growing larger for the man on the bridge. He shed all the wares he can tolerate and pulled what's left of his rope taut. Already tainted, I lay back on the ivy and rest. I wake to a bilious rumbling, the noise, the earthy smell, moving layers of soil seeping out from under the place where I'd slept, spilling into the creek. I reach for my brushes and block, but they escape into the waters. I roll over and do a push-up into a stand, scamper higher, the shoreline disappearing. A wall of water advances from the north, a creek too high. The face of the man on the bridge goes white. He's frozen in time just a moment then bends to grab the rope. I shout, but the roaring water blunts my voice. Just leave it. Run. Just leave it all behind. The water's so fast, the word's too late. The man, along with my bed of ivy, has washed away. Nothing I came with remains. The bridge has shifted, tipping up creek, offering me a near-perfect view of its deck. The burden of the man on the bridge has slid to the edge, hovers over the creek, the weight lugging it overboard with a great splash. I climb further up the hill. There's a playground two blocks away, past the Xeriscape Gardens. I remember seeing a drinking fountain somewhere, somewhere near the teeter-totters. Beautiful. And speaking of natural phenomena, um, our next instructor, due to a conspiracy of cold and weather, couldn't make it. Um, she drives all the way from Colorado Springs. So in, in a kind of draft first, she deputized a member of the workshop who I actually haven't met yet, nor been able to corroborate pronunciation <laughs> of his name. But I'm going to do my best. Are you him? Are you Larry Modisit? Modisit. Modisit. I've never heard it pronounced correctly. I, I have a gift. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, thank you for coming up and, and introducing on Catherine Eastburn's behalf. Larry. I thought I'd have to not only say my name, but spell it. <laughs> but I'll, I'll, since you did such a nice job with Modest at Andrea, I'll let it go by. Well, our speaker uh, next um, came from the Andean part of uh, Venezuela and uh, moved to New York in 2001. Uh, she moved from there to Ohio, where she developed a very bad case of depression, clinical depression. And unfortunately, depression in Venezuela is not an acceptable excuse. She denied she had it for years, but it won. Uh, but she discovered something. She took a writing course accidentally because it was given at the school where her husband taught. And she discovered that creative writing could be a wonderful means of learning something and, and getting out of this depression. She came to Denver in June of this year, where she then ended up, as Andrea said, in Catherine Eastburn's class. And I also was fortunate to be a part of that class as well. Um, to be able to understand and hear what this speaker had to say. She uh, impressed us all, not only with the courage with which she uh, 
discuss some very personal and difficult subjects, but also the skill with which she expressed herself in a language she learned far after she learned her native Spanish. How did she do that? (laughs) We're all trying to express ourselves in our first language and probably our only language, and she's doing it in her second language. I imagine you'd like to know a little bit more about that yourself. So please listen carefully and, and learn from Alejandra Meyerson Castillo. Alejandra? Thank you, everybody. Let me know if I'm too quiet because uh, this is the first time I do this. And I want to thank you, The Lighthouse, uh, for because I wouldn't be here without a writership that I applied to. And thanks to that, I was able to take this class, and I thank my classmates because you were so brave, and you inspired me to come out and say this out loud. The white light outside is still trying to make its way through your blinds as you sit on the rocking chair caressing the baby's forehead, thinking of the videos you will make for the kids, one for each birthday. You don't want them to forget you. As they get older, you will explain more detail why you couldn't stay, why you needed to end it. It is a hot August morning outside, but the room is cool, dark, as the quicksands you've fallen into is taking all of your strength to keep your head above the surface. You don't want to fight it anymore. What if you could just let go, let the sand get in your throat, reach your lungs, and drown you? You look down at your sleeping baby. You will miss all his first. In the first poems you write, your depression lies splattered all over the pages. You were happy to hear you could take the class without being part of the workshop. You were two weeks late, and the professor had already assigned the days when all 16 students will present their work. It didn't bother you. You certainly hadn't thought you would be taking a creative writing class. You had blindly signed up for this class to fulfill the composition requirement you had never managed to. You didn't want other people to see what you wrote. You were afraid you wouldn't be able to take criticism from the others, had you only known how much harder it would be to receive comments only from your professor. Depression is not part of your Latin American culture. You don't talk about your sorrows. A study showed Venezuelans among the happiest people in the world. As Horacio Paz describes in The Labyrinth of Sorrow, you are taught to be tough. You cannot botch. You don't let anyone break in. The men must suck it up. The women must be tamed and prudent. Antidepressants are often misunderstood and rarely prescribed where you're from. They can be obtained over the counter. Nobody really talks about them. The only one you knew about was Prozac because he had been in the news. Just because you're sad doesn't mean you need to take a pill. It's often hurt. It's just a made-up illness by the pharmaceutical corpse, a disease of the first world. In your teens, you lost many friends to suicide. You come from a continent that has produced some of the saddest music, poems, and stories of the Spanish language. The first day you go to class, you're scared. How will the kids react to having an old woman in their class? After all, it is a small liberal arts college with only undergraduate students. You could be their mother had you started breathing in your teens. You find a seat between the less and most likely to be asked to the prom. That None of that seems to matter in this class. When was the last time you read? You could have been a monster, but you're tough. Your half-sister once said to you proudly while referring to your hellish childhood, composed of rejection, abuse, debilitating poverty, one of three children of a single mother. But you weren't really tough. You were just pretending. All of those demons you have been manning up to finally caught up with you, menacing you, taking you with them like a deep current, the one you cannot swim away from. You've left New York City, where you have been living for the past 12 years, to follow your academic husband in the pursuing of his dreams, landing in that place you always knew you were going to end up, in small-town America. His job is temporary, your future uncertain. You don't know if you'll be able to stay in the U.S., if your husband will find a permanent position. When your kids start school and your husband his job, you're home alone, caring for your three-month-old. That hot summer, you're petrified inside, letting the darkness in bit by bit. What did it? Was it the raging postpartum hormones, the eruption of a failing marriage, the denial of how much you hated being home no matter how much you loved your children, or was it the lack of a path that you so much hated, kicking you on the face over and over? It is January when you start taking the class. 
You're shy, only speak when requested. You don't want to participate, to take over. You see your teenage self sitting across from you, holding a copy of The Catcher in the Rye in plain view, showing everyone in the room what kind of reader he is. To write, you must be a voracious reader, cautions the syllabus. You start by reading poems. It is like a drug. You then remember how addictive it could be. You start getting books for yourself every time you visit the library with your kids. You read them while you lie on the floor in the bedroom, making sure no monsters come at night. You wake up on the floor with a book on your chest. Where had you been? The average number of years an American waits to get help from depression, eight. You've gotten to that point where only a few things can happen. You hang yourself. You jump out in front of a train or out of a bridge. You shoot your brains off. No, all of that seems too painful, too messy, too awful of a death. You will slash your wrist, not at home. You don't want the kids to see the blood. You'll check yourself into a hotel, leave a note that can only be found a day later. You'll get in the top, relax, go to sleep, and never wake up. You're scared shitless, not of dying, but of the fact that you're actually going to do it, that you're not just toying with the idea. You are planning it. You need help now. You don't want to walk into an emergency room. You know where that will get you. You've seen it with your brother. You don't want to end up sedated, unable to see your children. What if you lose them? You don't want to go to the psychiatric guard. It is too scary there. Your brother was in it once. Everyone is in the same place, no matter how mentally ill they are. What if you can't get out? What if you lose yourself even more? There's help out there. You've seen it. In all the magazine ads, the billboards, the posters, you're going that route. You spend hours on the internet researching symptoms, drugs, their side effects. You find mental health clinics. You call a helpline. An old woman answers. In her robotic voice, she asks you questions. Suicidal thoughts? Check. Want to harm yourself or others? Check. Feelings of despair? Check. You cry. You want her to tell you that everything will be okay. Do you have insurance? Check. Someone will give you a call. (laughs) Someone will give you a call, she says. They never do. You tell your husband how you feel. He doesn't seem to understand the gravity of your situation. He cannot see your desperation. How will he? You still get up every day, cook your kids breakfast, pack their school lunches, pick them up, take them to the playground, pay the bills, keep up with the house. You Perhaps you even smile when you're at Target paying for diapers. You're embarrassed by how you feel. How could you? You're stronger than this. You're the pillar of the family. You are who everyone comes to when they need help. You can't tell anyone. Chinese is slowly disappearing from your class. You all leave your pretend selves outside. You are a writer in that class, and as such, you're expected to write about that that you don't want to write about. How do you turn off all the voices that say you can't do it, that you're not good enough? Glimpses of your life surface on the pages. You need to write with passion, your professor says. What is passion? How is your libido? You have seen this question in almost every medical history you've ever filled out. You remember those first, first years of your relationship when your now husband and you couldn't keep your hands off each other, when you rather spend the days in bed. Those memories seem so distant, a thing of the past. It is normal, you tell yourself. Everyone stops having sex after children. So you lie. Every time you fill out a form, you check, hi. Writing is like a disease. You cannot stop it. William Carlos Williams tells you from the blackboard. You're in fiction now. Your professor is writing about voice, point of view, plot. You must push the character to pursue its yearning. The shock reminds you of high school. It all feels so foreign to you. You're discussing the published works of others, short stories, flash fiction. You savor every word the author puts on paper. The more you read, the more you wonder. How will you ever write like that? You submit your fiction piece the last day of that genre. You think the story is great. You write only one draft. Monday, the comments are in. A paragraph of what works, a page and a half of what doesn't. (laughs) You want to burn the comments when you get home. You You walk into a mental health clinic. It is raining hard and the leaves have started to turn. You sob uncontrollably as you answer a 20-page questionnaire. A woman pulls out her laptop and apologizes for making you wait so long. She asks the same questions as the robotic boys before. The frames on her wall says she's a social worker. You want to give specifics. She tells you to just answer yes or no apologetically. 
She hands you a, a box of Kleenex. After an hour, she says, the wait to see a psychiatrist can be a month or more. Like a piece of cloth, the, the grayness of winter has lifted. You hear birds outside your windows in the morning, and it reminds you of the home you haven't, had, you haven't been back in years. You're reading nonfiction. The essay is personal. It comes from memory. Thou memory often fails us, but the writer must be honest. How honest can you possibly be? You want to say so much, but you're so afraid of the consequences. You tell your professor you feel uncomfortable writing about that you cannot write about. After all, both him and your husband work in the same liberal arc, a small liberal college. It isn't him you need to worry about. It is yourself. A PCP can prescribe medication. You look on the insurance website. You call every doctor on the list that's within 5 to 10 miles. No one can see you sooner than October. You take it. October 3rd. You hold on to that day as the only piece of debris that will save you from the water. It becomes your mantra. When the doctor walks in, you already have a script of what you're going to say. You want Wilbutrin, the happy skinny pill. <laughs> Take one tablet by mouth every day. You long for the day when it will start working. Instead, you taste metal in your mouth, hold a hand to your chest to stop your heart from jumping out. You can't stop reading nor writing. You trade hours of sleep for a chance to just finish that one page. It is true. The more you read, the more you want to write. Your professor has given you a list of authors to read. You're greedy. You want to read them all. During an exercise you write in second person, it is a short piece. It is about food. Like every other time in that class, you're afraid to turn it in. You need to start working on the self-esteem of yours. You submit it. You don't want to burn the comments and come back. You start feeling it. The passion running in your blood as you shiver when you write and rewrite. You don't notice when you start hitting the green button instead of the red one when the phone rings, or when you start opening the curtains and the windows in the bedroom, when you start leaving the house during the day on foot, babies trapped in a stroller, or when you notice how beautiful the quaint town you've moved into is, how sweet and soft-mannered the Miss Westerners are. You don't remember when your phone starts filling up with new area codes, when you start buying wine for, wine for the friends who are coming over for dinner, when you start baking again. You celebrate living in a swing state. <laughs> Ten-minute plays and the end of the semester are approaching. A play? You can never write one of those, but you do. You turn it in. By chance, it is part of a workshop. It is a fine play. By now, everyone in the classroom feels familiar, like home. There is no longer prudence in the class. The subjects are strong now. Sex, passion, crime, suicide, assault. The students no longer tiptoe when they workshop each other's work. How do you write about sex? You ask one day. You met your professor once at a party, but you don't remember him. The first few weeks of class, you addressed him as your kindergartner will address her teacher. <laughs> He's soft-spoken, slim, tall, in his late 40s. His face adorned by a perfectly trimmed beard and glasses. His clothes always seem recently ironed. But that isn't really how you think about him. Instead, you whisper his name, his name into his ear while you dig your fingers into his back. And even though it's only a fantasy, it frightens you. <laughs> you leave each class at the speed of light. It's not a crush. It is an attraction. They want to screw your brains off, kind. You're so inconsiderate, disrespectful, unfaithful. You fight these thoughts as a Catholic would fight the sinful ones, until it comes crashing down on you. Like a fast-moving avalanche, it takes you off your feet, throwing you back into reality. That last symptom, the lack of libido you have been lying about all this time, is gone. You feel you're awakening from a catatonic state, though you're unsure why it was your professor and not your husband who woke up that last part of your brain. In the personal essay for your portfolio, you tell him he has no idea what this class has done to you. <laughs> it is the end of May. You know now what it means to live one day at a time. Although the brevity of your stay is coming to an end and the future remains uncertain, you no longer grieve it. The news comes a few days before your visa expires. Your husband has landed a tenure-track position. Your baby turns one. Your three-year-old is trying to open the presents you're meant to pack away while your five-year-old sounds and reads the words on the boxes. Kitchen, toys, books. 
You record a video of him scooting up and down the hallway and saying hola, and you're grateful for the videos you didn't have to make. As you pack your house again, this time for a more permanent move, you know you had to do this, that there is a reason why you had to be here, in the middle of corn country, at this moment. There is a reason why you made the friends you, that you now have to leave, why you hated it to death, only to learn to love it with passion just when it was time to go, while you almost died in the process, where you were able to save yourself. You have many good days and fewer bad days, days when you can't get inspired to write, days when you can't stop. You write in your head when you sleep. You are beholden to the happy pills because you know that is what saved your life. And you write as much as you can because you know that is what saved your mind. That's our mission statement right there. That, that is amazing. Thank you. Thank you for that. And thank you, Larry, for your intro. Um, eponymous isn't the right word, but your uh, male version. The, okay, Alexander Philippe, um, who, who what, he drafted somebody for tonight. And unfortunately, even even... A, a bigger obstacle than Catherine Eastburn being in Colorado Springs. He is in Geneva. Um, right. So unbeknownst to him, I asked Nick Arvin if he would do the next intro, and he agreed. So this is a spontaneous and kind of charitable intro for our final reading of the night. Um, please welcome Nick Arvin on behalf of Alexander Philippe. Um, yeah, I, you know, first of all, I should say, I know a lot of you know Alexander. His father passed away, and that's the reason he's in Geneva. Um, so, you know, send him your, your thoughts, your prayers, your juju, whatever your spiritual transmittal mode is. Um, and, and so I, I'm, I was asked moments ago... <laughs> to do this introduction. Um, the reason I was asked is uh, I've been taking Alexander's class. Um, I'm, I'm a fiction writer, and um, Alexander teaches uh, screenwriting, um, and uh, I've become interested in screenwriting, so I thought I would take his class, which has been a great experience. Um, and <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm introducing Greg, um, and it, it's awkward because I actually I, I'm not even sure how to pronounce your last name, Greg. <laughs> Shout it out, Hibbeneth. Um, and uh, if you see it spelled, you can see why I, I wanted him to do it for me. Um, but uh, it's been a great class. Um, it's been I've learned a lot, um, and you know when just a like on a generic about screenwriting thing that's been really interesting to me. I don't, maybe it's just this class, but you know, I've, I've taught a lot of fiction classes and sometimes you get a story and you're like, it's a, a story, right? But you're looking at it and you're like, I'm not sure there's a story in here. Um, and that, that has not happened in screenwriting. There's, there's clearly a story there every time. It's been really cool. Um, and then it's, it's been neat to be a student in a class again. I haven't taken a class in a long time. Um, and it's, uh, it's been cool to see, you know, everybody's, everybody's got a real story to, to tell. Um, but then you can see that there are some students who have more experience or who just have a, you know, instinctive understanding of the form um, that, that just comes through and what they're working on. Um, uh, just a, and to kind of give you a sense of who Greg is, um, the uh, the thing that I really remember is we, so Alexander has us watch a movie each week, um, and 
I, you know, and like thinking about it, I was like, you know, it makes sense. Like people, the great writers are people who, first of all, were great readers, right? And if you're going to be a great screenwriter, you, you're probably going to be a person who, who loves watching movies. Um, and so one of the movies we, um, we had to watch was Solaris. How many of you have seen Solaris? Yeah, that's a good, yeah, there's a good question coming over there. So there, there are a handful, there are maybe four or five hands up. Um, there's, there's a George Clooney version, which is much more recent. And then there's the original uh, by Tarkovsky in Russian. Um, and it's three hours long. And, and it's, um, some of it's a little boring. Um, <laughs> But but it's it's it it comes together in the end. I I <laughs> I ended up I, yeah. It was one of those movies. I was like, we spent two hours. I, I don't know why I'm doing this. But the last hour is it's amazing. It's like transporting. Like I'm going to be thinking about that movie for years. Um, and so Alexander, you know, he's at the front of the class. He's like, so yeah, what do you guys think of the movie? Some people are like, well, I gave up after two hours. <laughs> and um, and he's like, had any of you seen it before? You know, I'd seen the George Clooney version. I, I hadn't seen this one. Um, and Greg sticks his up. He's seen it. Um, and then he's like, actually, I've seen it like six or seven times now. <laughs> so... Um, the way this is going to work is Greg's going to read, and again, this is like, I'm just, this is a new form to me. I don't even know what to call this stuff. This is like, he's going to read the, like the direction, the, the stuff that, that you're, you're kind of telling. Um, and then the dialogue is uh, going to be read by myself and a couple other students from the class, Dave and Wesley. Um, so come on up, guys. Uh, thank you for sticking around. Um, I just want to thank Dave, uh, Wesley, and Nick for, uh, they actually volunteered to help me with this. Um, and we haven't rehearsed, so. You should, you should say a little bit about where this comes Yeah, so the, uh, the screenplay that I'm working on is, uh, it's an adaptation of a book that was published in 1820, um, and the name of the book is Melmoth the Wanderer, uh, and it's written by a guy named Charles Maturin, and uh, it is, uh, can everybody hear me? I, okay, good. Uh, the, the gist of the story is it's, uh, it's about a, an Irishman who is on his deathbed, and he sells his soul to the devil in exchange for 150 years of life. And so the, the book kind of follows this uh, 150 years, uh, and it's kind of broken up into fragments. And uh, the section that I'm going to read tonight, uh, it is uh, going to focus on one of the main characters. Uh, he is a, a Spanish monk, and he has been sent to a prison of the Inquisition uh, because he has renounced his monastic vows. Uh, so the, the first scene uh, starts, in, uh, this is kind of in the middle of the, the script, um, and like I said, we haven't rehearsed, so we're kind of going to share the microphone, so just bear with us. Um, but the first scene, uh, it's in a torture chamber, uh, which is fun. Uh, so, so here we go. Alonzo is suspended from the ceiling by his wrists, which are chained behind his back. Weights are tied to his ankles. A hooded torturer mans a wheel-like device. He pulls on the wheel, causing Alonzo to drop until the fall is checked by the rope. Alonzo screams in agony. Prison cell, midnight. Alonzo is chained to the wall. Moonlight provides a hint of illumination. From the corner... A light shines onto his face. He looks toward the source. The traveler stands there, holding a candle. His profile is in shadow, his face hooded. Who is there? Who are you? I know you. How did you get in here? 
Like you, I am a prisoner. I have been permitted to visit you. Have they sent you here to, to torture me? The traveler emerges from the shadows and removes his hood. No, my friend. We are merely two sufferers who are indulged with the power of meeting each other. Tears stream down Alonzo's face in relief. Do not despair. They are going to kill me, aren't they? I will not let them. What can you do? You are a prisoner like me. We are just men. No, you are mistaken, Alonzo. You are meant to endure. I do not want to endure. I just want to atone for my sins and leave this place. Perhaps you think that your lingering here amid the dungeons of the Inquisition will secure your salvation. There is no error more absurd than the belief that your suffering will promote your spiritual safety. Please, just let me be. With regard to your escape, you must be aware of the difficulty which will attend it. Escape? Escape? There is no escape from this place. The traveler cups Alonzo's face in his hands and stares directly into his eyes. You place all of your faith in the wrong savior. When the time comes, you must be ready. The traveler blows out the candle, plunging the cell into darkness. Later, Alonzo lies on his bed, sleeping. A bright red glow illuminates the room. From outside, several panicked voices shout at one another. Alonzo awakens, gets out of bed, and goes toward the window. I awoke that night to find the heavens on fire. Prison courtyard, midnight. Several of the towers are ablaze. Alonzo stands among a dozen prisoners, all clothed in tattered garments. They are attended to by several guards. All of them stare in terror as the fire spreads. One of the towers collapses into a pile of rubble and cinder. Several of the prisoners fall to their knees in prayer. Alonzo looks toward one of the prison walls and sees standing atop it a figure surveying the inferno. Alonzo squints and sees that the figure is actually the traveler. He turns his head and locks eyes with Alonzo and smiles. A nearby archway collapses, creating a cloud of ash and smoke. The, prison, the prisoners and guards react in terror and confusion. They scatter in various directions. Through the smoke, Alonzo turns his gaze back toward the wall. The traveler has vanished. Several prisoners and guards lie buried beneath the rubble. Some of them are still alive, shrieking and dying. Beyond the rubble, Alonzo sees a space has been created in a section of the wall. Freedom. Alonzo emerges through the space and finds himself in the streets of Madrid. He looks around. Smoke billows out of the prison. He is alone. He takes off running. He sprints through the deserted streets, past buildings, past houses. He runs until he can run no further. Breathless, he stops, looks up, and sees an old church. Its doors are open. Light emanates from within. Alonzo enters and sees several priests standing near the altar. A few devotees are scattered throughout the pews on their knees, praying. Alonzo treads lightly so as not to be noticed. He kneels down in the back pew and struggles to catch his breath. He is drenched in sweat and still has ash in his hair from the fire. He bows his head and prays. A young acolyte approaches from the back of the church. He begins to walk past Alonzo, then pauses and turns. He sees Alonzo's torn clothes, his bare feet. Alonzo looks up at him, pleading with his eyes. The acolyte signals to the priests at the front of the church. Alonzo jumps to his feet and sprints toward the exit. Streets, moments later. Alonzo runs down a narrow passageway. He stops and cowers against the doorway of a house. He looks about to see if he has been followed. No one is around. He leans his head back and allows himself a moment to catch his breath. The door opens inward, making a loud creaking sound. He freezes. He listens. He waits. Nothing. Alonzo stands up. He looks inside the room, and then he enters. A small, dark space, 
Large curtains conceal the windows. A dim lamp is suspended from the ceiling. In the center of the room is a table covered with cloth. On it is a large open book. Beside the book is a knife. A rooster is secured to the leg of the table with a thin piece of rope. The rooster sees Alonzo and crows. Alonzo cringes and makes a shushing sound. The rooster ignores him and crows again. Alonzo waits for someone to enter. No one does. He approaches the table and looks at the book. It is a Hebrew Bible. Alonzo hears someone approaching. He retreats toward the window and wraps himself in the thick, heavy curtains. An old man, Solomon, enters the room. The hardness of life is etched in the lines on his face. He is tired, sustained only by an undercurrent of anger. He kneels down beside the table, kisses the Bible, takes hold of the knife, and prays. Have mercy upon him. Pardon all his transgressions, for there is not a righteous man upon earth who doth good and sinneth not. Remember him unto the righteousness which he... He stops reading and looks about. He lifts himself to his feet and points the knife toward the window. I know you are there. This is my home. You cannot hide from me. Silence. Then Alonzo pushes the curtain aside, revealing his presence. Are you here to betray me? To the Inquisition? Alonzo stares at him, considering the question, then... Yes, I will betray you to the Inquisition. Unless you promise to shelter me from it. Solomon looks at Alonzo, sees his clothes, his bare feet. He goes over to him. Alonzo steps back. Solomon reaches out and rips the tattered rags from Alonzo's frame, revealing his skeletal naked form. Please, I beg of you. Solomon's wife, Rebecca, a striking, dark-haired woman, enters. She sees Alonzo standing there naked. She screams and runs back inside. Rebecca! Solomon kicks the table over in frustration, knocking its contents to the floor. He grabs the rooster as it tries to escape. The bird screams. Statim maktat galam. Solomon takes the knife and slices the rooster's head off. The bird's headless body flaps and flies about, its neck splattering blood all over the two men and everything in the room. Alonzo throws himself at Solomon's feet. Please, do not kill me. I beg you. I will do anything you ask. Solomon looks down at Alonzo with pity. That's it. Thank you. Wow, you guys. To end on a gothic note. Um... So when it's time to cast the movie, are you guys available? uh, Anyway, you guys, one more round of applause for the readers tonight. Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.